where we are actually studying through the shadows of Golgotha, pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. We're going through the Old Testament and we're trying to see how the cross of Christ was the focal point of the whole scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God was mindful of the cross. We have arrived to Isaiah 53. This is week number three for us in Isaiah 53. Um, we started from Isaiah 52 verse uh, 13. And we spent two weeks in these two ver three verses, and now we have arrived to Isaiah 53. We're going to read verses 1 to 3 today, and we're going to uh, just focus on that part and try to meditate and study it. Isaiah 53, 1 to 3. Here is what the Bible says. Who has believed our message or our report? And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root uh, and like a root out of dry, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by, by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Amen. All right, we started two weeks ago, and we said that in Isaiah 52, verse 3, if you've been memorizing, how does that, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13, how does that verse start? God is introducing his servant, and he's saying, behold my servant. And God said after that, he shall prosper, and even though he was so disfigured, he will be so exalted uh, highly. So the, what the speaker in the first three verses that we already spoke about for the last two weeks was God himself introducing his servant, right? When we come to Isaiah 53 verse 1, there is a shift in the speaker here. It is not God himself anymore talking about the servant, but we see a speaker who referred to himself as we or us or our, right? So this is uh, either a person speaking on behalf Apparently, a person is speaking on behalf of a group of people, right? And he's talking here about that servant in Isaiah 53. And he talks about him from verse 1 all the way to verse 9. It seems like it's the same speaker running through. And who is that speaker? That is um, a major uh, problem, I would say, between us Christians who believe that this is Christ and the Jewish people who reject the idea that the speaker here is, um, is the nation of Israel and talks about Christ. And they say, no, 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 this is not about Jesus. And that all comes down to who is the speaker here in verses 1 to 9. That's really the major problem. Now, we know for sure from the New Testament that the speaker here is the nation of Israel looking back at their Messiah and how they misunderstood him, right? I'll show you that in a minute. Remember what we said last week about the, the, the servant that kings, Gentile kings will shut their mouth in his presence, right? Remember that? So we see last week that the Gentile nations will recognize Christ and his atoning death on the cross. Now we move here to verse 1 to 9 and we see Israel, the nation of Israel, looking back and recognizing how they misunderstood and even persecuted the servant of God who came primarily to save them. The New Testament tells us plainly here that the speaker is the nation of Israel. How do we get that from? Where do we get that from? Isaiah 53.1, who has believed our report, was quoted twice in the New Testament. 
And each time is in the context of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, rejecting the ministry of Christ. Amen? The two times where that verse was quoted are in John 12, 38 and in Romans 10, 16. We see that verse quoted twice. In, in John, well, actually in both verses... It, it reads like this, Lord, who has believed our report? So it's a little bit different than what Isaiah 53 reads here. The reason is, in the New Testament, both John in John 12 and Paul in Romans 10, they quoted the Septuagint. You guys remember what that is? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament before Christ. And the Septuagint reads it like that, Lord, who has believed our report? And that's the Bible that Jesus had, the, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, is the Bible that Jesus had and all the disciples had. So pretty much when they, most of the time, maybe 50% of the time, whenever they quote the Old Testament, they quote the Septuagint verbatim. So we see in, in, in John 12 and in Romans 10, both John and Paul quoting Isaiah 53.1, but they recorded as, Lord, who has believed our report? And in both incidences, it's in the context of the nation of Israel rejecting the ministry of Christ and Christ being the Messiah. In, in, in John, look at this. In, 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 in Isaiah 53.1, remember what we said earlier last week, how God will exalt the servant so high and kings will shut their mouth in his presence because how highly God will exalt him. So Isaiah 53 here, when it says, who has believed our report, the word report might, might mean how the servant will be exalted. And the nation of Israel kind of looking at each other and say, how did we miss this one? How we missed that report that the, the one who came all the way down to the cross to be disfigured now has been exalted high, so high that everybody, even kings, shutting their mouth in his presence. So that's the idea of Isaiah 53. John quoted that in, and applied that to the ministry of Christ when Jesus was displaying his glory in signs and wonders and that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, kept on rejecting him. And it's as if John was telling us and as much as the Jewish people of Isaiah 53.1 looked at the Messiah being exalted and say, how did we miss it? So are the Jewish people during the ministry of Christ, they also missing his glory that is being manifested in signs and wonders. Amen. Paul quoted the same verse again, but he did not apply it to the direct ministry of Christ, but rather the ministry of the gospel. Amen. Remember what we said last week, um, how even Kings will shut their mouth in the presence of the Messiah. And then it says, for those who never heard will hear, and those who never, never understood will understand. And Paul, if you remember, quoted that in Romans 15, because he was telling us how he made it his purpose to preach the gospel to those who never heard. And his idea is this, Isaiah 52, 15 says that those who never heard will hear, right? Right? And this week, this week in Isaiah 53, 1, we see that the Jewish people rejecting Christ, right? He says, who has believed our report? And it seems like Paul used these two verses kind of like as a prophecy or a foundation for his ministry. Amen? So every time he shared the gospel with the Jewish people and they reject Christ, he reminds himself of Isaiah 53, 1 and say, well, the Bible said in the Old Testament that the Jewish nation will say, who has believed our report? Amen? And every time he goes 
out and try to reach a group of a Gentile nation who has not heard the gospel, he reminds himself of Isaiah 52, 15. Those who never heard will hear, and those who have never understand will understand. Amen? We see that actually pretty precise in the way even Paul quoted that in Romans chapter 10. If you go back with me to Romans 10, we're going to read verse 16. And here is what Paul said. He said, talking about Israel now as a, as a nation, the Jewish people, and he said, uh, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, talking about the Jewish people. For Isaiah says, now he's talking about how they reject the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? And then if you read verse 18 in Romans 10, it says, but I say, have they not heard? Have the Jewish people never heard? No, yes, indeed, they did hear. Amen? So Paul also is kind of making a distinct, distinct between how the Gentiles, how the Gentiles never heard about the Messiah, yet once they hear, they actually obey the message of the gospel and exalt him. Now that doesn't seem to be the issue with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel problem is not that they never heard, right? The problem is they heard, but they intentionally rejected the Messiah and they even persecuted him but then eventually they come to the point to realize what have we done you guys follow the difference between the Gentiles and the nation of Israel amen so the problem with the Gentiles is that they never heard the problem with Israel is that they heard and they refused, right? Paul tells us that, and he points again back. All of this is founded in Isaiah 52 and 53. In Romans uh, 10, 20 and 21, look what he says. But Isaiah is very bold, and he says, I was found by people who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask of me. What is Paul talking about here? The Gentiles, right? Because they never heard, right? That's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, 15, that those who never heard were here. So Paul is using that as a foundation to his ministry and explaining why the Gentiles, they, they never heard, but once they hear, they accept. On the other hand, look at this, verse 21. But to Israel, the nation of Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. So Paul is telling us here that the problem with the nation of Israel is not that they never heard, but they heard, but they are disobedient. You guys follow me so far? So we know from the New Testament that the speaker here in Isaiah 53, 1-9 is no question the nation of Israel. No question about it. Amen? Who, who eventually will come to know Christ as the Messiah and kind of like, what have we done kind of attitude. Problem is... We can now use the New Testament as a proof when you try to talk to a Jewish person and tell them that Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus, right? Because they don't believe in it to start with. So it's not going to do them any good. It do you, me, and you and me very good because we know now for sure. So we'll talk about um, that one other time. Just go through Isaiah 53 and see who's really the servant. But we know from the New Testament that it is the nation of Israel. And from verse 1 to verse 9, we see the nation of Israel kind of lamenting how they have misunderstood the, the Messiah and his mission, and even to the point that they even persecuted him. In verses 1 to 3, we see that they confess how the humble appearance of the servant led to his rejection. So in these three verses that we were just reading, it's not really talking about the cross per se. It more talks about the life and the ministry of Christ. And how through his life and ministry, his humble appearance, lead the nation of Israel to misunderstand 
the Messiah and what he's supposed to do and eventually lead to the ultimate rejection. Amen? So that's verses 1 to 3. And then verses 4 to 6, we see how they contrast how Jesus is being punished for their sins and then the, yet they look at him and say, oh, he's be, be, being punished for his own sins. Amen? So in verses 4 and 6, they contrast their attitude toward Jesus while he's being punished for their own sins. And then verses 7 to 9, we see the contrast between the unjust circumstances of the servant death with his sinless submission. So they say in verses 7 to 9, he was sinless, yet he was punished. That's the theme of these three last verses of verse 7 to 9. Amen? So, this week we're going to take verses 1 to 3, we're going to dig deeper into all of that, and then uh, after that we're going to, uh, I think next week we're just going to stop at verse 4 alone. But this week let's uh, try to go through verses 1 to 3 and try to analyze what the scripture is trying to tell us here. It starts with this phrase, who has believed our report and to whom the hand, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Obviously these are rhetorical questions, Amen. The answer to that is zero, right? Who has believed our report? Almost none or nobody, amen? So these are two rhetorical questions that the nation of Israel kind of like, the attitude is, what have we done? Who could have ever imagined that the one who was put all the way down to be disfigured on the cross is actually the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for, amen? Our report, when they say our report, they probably are referring to the rest of that verse, verses 1 to 9, when they're talking about how he was all the way down to be a substitute for their own sins on the cross, and they just shocked that the Messiah will come all the way down to that point. Or it can also be linked to what was preceding that when the Messiah was exalted and say, who could ever imagine that the one who's exalted that high, who actually came down first, is actually the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Amen? I mean, they're all linked, so it's not like either or everything is overlapping here. Uh, who has believed our report and to whom the arm of the Lord has been manifested? That's uh, The arm of the Lord is usually, in Isaiah, is a reference to the power of God to save. And in a way, he's saying, who could have ever believed that this man who was so disfigured at the cross is actually the manifestation of the power of God to save us from our sins. Amen? Again, verses 1 to 3, it doesn't really talk about the cross. It more talks about how the humble life that Jesus lived all the way from his birth till to the, to the point that he got on the cross like made the nation of Israel so in, in amazed and shocked they could never even imagine that this could be the Messiah. Amen? And they start now explaining how this his humble looking really led them to his rejection. And they started by saying, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Amen? The word here for before him a tender shoot it's really like the idea here is a small plant who grew on top of the other plant and and that small plant is dependent on the mother plant for nutrition and just for life pretty much you know so the idea here is something that is extremely weak and so dependent on something else and let's say this pretty much was Jesus when he was growing up from the day of his birth all the all the way to, to the, die, the time he died on the cross through his life and ministry you look at him and it's just like man he's weak he's dependent there's nothing really majestic there's nothing royal about how he looks or how he acts amen 
Same idea here, he was like a root out of dry ground. The idea again when you have dry ground is he grew up in such a hard circumstances, very tough, that you cannot even see anything majestic or royal about him. Everything about him was actually either average or really below average. Nothing really super nice or fancy about the way Jesus grew up. Amen? So he grew up before God from the, the day he was born till actually the day he was about to go to the cross as somebody who appeared to the Jewish people as weak, as dependent, nothing really super fancy or super majestic about him. And that's how they rejected him. And if you go to the Gospels and read through the life of Christ, you'll see really that there was really nothing fancy about the upbringing of Christ. We read about him when he was really little, when they took him to the temple to consecrate him, that Anna the prophetess and Simeon the prophet, they both prophesied that Jesus is the Messiah, right? And then we don't hear about him at all till he's age 12. And then we read in Luke chapter 2 that he goes to the temple and then he's arguing and understanding and questioning the teachers. And everybody, his parents were amazed at that, right? That's two days out of 30 years that he started his ministry, right? Two unique days, and the rest of the 30 years, we know nothing about him. You know why we know nothing about him? Because there is nothing to report. There is nothing unique. There is nothing unusual happened to Jesus from the day he was born till the day he actually started his ministry. If there was anything unique, I, I believe that the Bible would have told us, but there was absolutely nothing. A normal kid growing up in a small family, in a small town, nothing to report there. Amen? Yet that was the Son of God coming in flesh. Amen? He grew up before the Father all these years like, like a, a small suckling plant that is totally dependent. He grew up before God like a root that is shooting out of dry ground. And then they continue and say, There was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Amen? The idea here, obviously, isn't that Jesus was ugly looking. Amen? They're not saying he was so ugly we couldn't even look at him. That's not the point. The point is there was nothing majestic about him. There is nothing out of the ordinary about him that makes us want to go and be attracted to him. There was nothing like that. We see that throughout the scripture, we see that they, they looking at Christ and not seeing that there is anything unique about him is ultimately what they led to his rejection. And when you look through the life of Christ from the day he was born, even to the day he actually started his ministry at the age 30, you'll see that. You'll see that very vividly, that there was nothing super attractive, super majestic about him. Amen? If anything, you'll see that there's a lot of factors that was against him that made him to appear even lower than your average person. Amen? Jesus was a middle class. Jesus was a lower class person. You guys follow me? Amen? Let's look at his life and just follow. First of all, he was born, how he was, I'm going to show you how he has no appearance, no attraction, no majesty that people will look into him. Number one, he was born in a manger, right? Everybody in that time was probably born in a house, right? But Jesus was below that. He was born in a manger among animals. Number two, his father was a carpenter. Now, back then, just like now, they look at, if you're educated and you have a high job, they look up to you. If you're not, they look down at you. Guess what? They look down at Jesus. His father, Joseph, was a carpenter. Amen? Number three, he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town of about 150 people. And guess what? It's the same today as it was 
2,000 years ago. You go meet somebody, tell them where do you live? I live in Manhattan, New York. Wow, and or Los Angeles, oh wow. And tell them you're from London, Kentucky or something like that. It's like, whatever, who are you? You know what I mean? So anyways, the point is when you grow up in a small town, people look down at you. It doesn't matter what happened 2,000 years ago, it's still happening today. But that's Jesus. He was born in a manger. He grew to a lower class family. His father was a carpenter. He grew up in a, such a small town, 150 people. And he probably was a carpenter till he started his ministry at the age 30. And that's why in Mark 6, 2-3, when Jesus went back to his own town and he's preaching and he's teaching them with wisdom and the power of God is there, look at how the people perceived Christ. In Mark 6, 2-3, says, Many hearing him were astonishing, astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things from? And what wisdom is this which is given to him such that such mighty works are performed by his hands? They're so astonished at what he's doing. And look at this. Is this not the what? The carpenter. The, carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Are not all his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. They best case scenario best case scenario if we give people the benefit of the doubt when they say that they're probably saying that he's so common that we're surprised that he has all this wisdom and all this might amen I believe that they try also to insult him a little bit this is not just oh he's average they're saying oh he's actually way below average number one they say he's a carpenter right and I don't think here they're trying to admire his creativity when it comes to wood, right? They're just trying to say he's a low-class person. And to call him the son of Mary in that culture, you're being called by the son of your father, not the, not, not, not the name of your mother. They might, I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure if that's the case or not, but they might be trying to insult him here, you know? But the idea is, even if they don't mean to insult him, the point is, they look at him and say, what happened to him? He was very normal, very average, nothing super unique about him. Where he gets all this power and all this wisdom from. Amen? Again, like Isaiah 52, uh, 53, 2, there was no majesty or beauty that will attract us to him. Jesus got tired of walking. We read about that in John 4, 5. He needed, um, in John 4, uh, in John 4, 5. And then we read in Matthew 21, verse 2, that when he wanted to enter Jerusalem, he needed to borrow a donkey. Jesus didn't have his own donkey. Jesus didn't have his own horse that he can ride everywhere he goes. Amen? He's just walking everywhere. He probably could not afford a donkey or a horse if he needed to. Because he was average or below average. There is nothing majestic about him. Amen? Jesus didn't have the temple tax to pay. We read that story, I think it's in Matthew 17. People come to him and like, hey, you're not going to pay the taxes? And they came to Peter. So Peter goes to Jesus and says, hey, they need the taxes. Jesus said, well, go cast your hook in the, in the sea and the first fish that comes, you're going to find the coin, pay for them and for me. Well, Jesus, why don't you just put your hand in your pocket, get the money and pay your taxes? He probably didn't have it in his pocket. Amen? Because Jesus was just your average person. Even when he was buried, he was not buried in a tomb of his own, right? Somebody else bought that tomb for him. He didn't own his own tomb. I think all of us, he probably either own or thinking about owning a tomb, right? But Jesus was even lower than that. 
Jesus was nothing about his life, about his uprising, about his ministry that was so majestic or so attractive that people would look at him and say, wow, I want to hang out with that person. Amen? There was no majesty or appearance that will attract us to him. And then we'll move on to verse 3. And it talks about Christ and it says that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pains. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. In that verse we see here how that the servant, Christ, the servant of God, was despised in two different folds. Number one, he was despised by association with suffering. We see that in the first part. He was despised and rejected by mankind. How? He was a man of sorrow and he was familiar with pain. So that's the number one um, manifest of how he was despised. The number two manifest is he was despised because he was an object of displeasure. We see that in the last part of that verse, like one from whom people hid their faces. We just, he's an object of this pleasure, that's why he was despised. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Amen? Let's look deeper a little bit into that. He was despised and rejected. Well, despised and rejected usually goes hand in hand. Amen? When you despise something, you usually end up rejecting it. Amen? We see a story actually in the Bible and in the book of Genesis chapter 25 when Esau um, despised his birthright. And what he ended up doing? He rejected it, right? He sold it out because he despised it. He didn't think much of it. And Jesus here was both despised and rejected. Or you can say that he was rejected because he was despised. People didn't look, didn't think much of him. That's why they ended up rejecting him. Amen? Jesus was despised and he was rejected. He was a man of suffering, a man of sorrows. It depends on what translation you read. But the Hebrew word here pretty much carries all this meaning. That Jesus was a man of suffering, affliction, sorrows. It can indicate physical pain. It can indicate mental pain. It can indicate both physical and mental pain. It indicates affliction, grief. That's, that's the, the, what the word is actually compass. It's very interesting to me because that exact word was mentioned in Exodus 3, 7. That's when God was talking about the nation of Israel and how they are suffering under the affliction of Egypt. And God said, I have heard their cry by, by reason of their taskmaster masters, for I know their sorrows. It's the exact same word that used here in Isaiah 53 to describe Christ. Now think about the affliction that the children of Israel were in, in the land of Egypt. There was physical pain, correct, but there was also mental torment that was associated with that. It's all sort of affliction and grief and sorrow and pain that is associated with the bondage that the people of Israel experienced in the land of Egypt. Amen? And that's the exact same word that we see describing Christ here. He was a man of affliction, suffering, pains. That's experienced all of that. And he also was familiar with pain, or as the King James says, he was acquainted with grief. The, same, the word grief here means disease, means affliction, evil, calamity, the whole thing. It's, again, the point here is, when he says that the servant was a man of, of suffering, a man of sorrows and familiar with pain, 
they're not trying, Isaiah is not telling us that Jesus was, was physically sick throughout his life. Amen? He's not trying to tell us that he was sick, but rather that he was always associated and experiencing suffering and pain throughout, and even persecution and affliction throughout his life. All the way, not just at the cross, but all his life till he gets to the cross. Amen? Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and he held him in low esteem. Again, we see the repetition here. We see in, in the first part of verse uh, 3 that he was despised, and the, we see it again repeated here that he was despised. The idea here is emphasis, that he was truly, truly despised. Just in case you missed the first one, here it is one more time that he was despised. Amen? And then it says that we esteemed him... Um, we esteemed him in low esteem. Actually, the, 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 the Hebrew has point, something to the point that we reckoned him as nothing. Not just low, nothing. We counted him as zero. That's how the Hebrew here carries that meaning. That when, when, when the Jewish people looked at Christ throughout, we're not talking about the cross. We're talking about his upbringing. We're talking about his ministry. The, the people who were around him, who were surrounding him at that time, they esteemed him as a nothing. Right? That becomes in perfect line. If you remember in, in Philippians 2, 6 and 7 and 8, that part when, when Paul talked about how Christ humbled himself. And the NIV puts it like that. It says, he humbled himself and he became nothing. That's how the NIV puts it. And that's literally not what Jesus has become. This is also how the people around him has perceived him. He's nothing. This is the Son of God who became human for you and me. To provide for our salvation. Amen? Let's look at that. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the life of Christ. I want to show you that Jesus was despised, that Jesus was rejected, and that Jesus was a man of sorrows. That's pretty much the three points of this verse. Number one, Jesus was despised. Was Jesus despised by the people surrounding him? Yes, absolutely. We see that even before he started his ministry. In John 1.46, that's when Philip saw Jesus. So he went to his brother Nathaniel and told him, Come and see, we have the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like, where he's from? And Philip's like, oh, he's from Nazareth. And then guess what Nathaniel say? Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? Again, he despised him just by the place where Jesus grew up. Another verse I haven't mentioned here in, in, in John chapter 9, after the man who was born blind got, got healed by Jesus, then, then the elders and the, the Pharisees are questioning him. And then, then they tell the man who was blind, he said, we are disciples of Moses. You might be his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. And then they said, we know that God spoke to Moses, but this fellow, we don't know who spoke to him or where he's from. Say they, they even despised him and put him down. They didn't even say his name. He's like this fellow, this unnamed fellow. The person that is not worthy for us to even mention his name. We don't even know where he's from or what he's doing. They despised him. We talked about this before, but I'm going to highlight this again. Throughout the ministry of Christ, look at the names that he was being called. We mentioned this before. He was demon They called him demon-possessed in John 7 and 8 and 10. He called him a Samaritan. Again, that's a degradatory term in, in John chapter 8. They called him mentally insane or unstable in John chapter 10. He called him gluttonous and a drunkard. That's and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And none of these is complimentary words. Amen? They're all insulting terms. And they called him a deceiver. 
believer in John chapter 7. So you see that through the, we're not talking how Jesus was despised on the cross. We're talking about his ministry and his life that he was despised and esteemed as nothing but those who were surrounding him. Amen? Jesus was also rejected by those who were surrounded him. Again, we're not talking the cross, we're talking his life and ministry. For example, John 1.11, we read this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. In Mark 6, 1-6, Jesus goes to Nazareth. He's trying to tell people about him, and they see him, and they end up rejecting him so much that Jesus goes out and says, There is no prophet without honor except in his own country because his own people his own remember this is a group of 150 people right so for for them to see Jesus growing up and then they ultimately reject him they probably know every intimate detail about his upbringing and his life and they ultimately rejecting him his own people probably have never seen anything wrong from him but they ultimately reject him in Luke chapter 20 again I'm just highlighting a couple of examples I'm not mentioning everything in Luke chapter 20 we see that Jesus is using a parallel about the vine dressers which is the nation of Israel whom God has kept sin prophet after another and they keep rejecting him so much that the the owner of that vine decided to send his own son and what they do they reject him and they crucify him and Jesus when he was talking about the son of the owner of the vine he's talking about himself being rejected by the nation of Israel amen Jesus was despised, Jesus was rejected, but Jesus was also a man of sorrow and suffering and affliction throughout his life and his ministry. We see him heartbroken over Lazarus and his death in, in John chapter 11 that he wept over him. We see him heartbroken over Jerusalem and Jerusalem insistence to reject him in Luke chapter 19 that he cried and wept over Jerusalem. He was troubled at his spirit, in his spirit by the betrayal of Judah. He was concerned that Peter will deny him and fall into temptation that Jesus has to intercede for him. He was moved with compassion when he see the crowds and their needs. His, kind of, his heart goes out for them. He's afflicted for them. He, he, and then he performed a miracle to provide every single need they have. And then all of this wasn't even enough. When he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying before the cross. Look at what he says. He says, I am overwhelmed with sorrow and grief to the point of death. Just the sorrow and the grief that I'm experiencing, anticipating the cross, that is strong enough to make me die at this moment. The author of Hebrews tells us over and over that Jesus was suffering, he has suffered, and he was persecuted in every single aspect that you and I could ever experience. In Hebrews 2, 17 to 18, look at this. This is what the author of Hebrews says. For this reason, he had to be made like them fully, look at this, fully human in every way. Have you experienced lack of finances? Jesus was there. Have you experienced a death of a loved one? Jesus was there. Have you been persecuted? Jesus was there. Have you been ashamed? Jesus was there. Have you been despised? Jesus was there. Every single issue that you have ever experienced, Jesus was there. He suffered the exact same thing. He's fully human in every way. In order that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Why? Look at this. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. Amen? In every, every aspect of your life, Jesus suffered in the same manner. That's why he can give you help, because he was there himself. Amen? Um, 
I'll tell you one thing for sure, a story, quick story here. When I came to America, I, I went to a Bible school and um, for a year. I came here to visit and then I went to a Bible school and um, I applied with the immigration to change my status from visitor to a student. And at that point, my mom has already filed the immigration petition for me. And apparently there is a law that if you have a, a, an immigration um, case pending, then you cannot apply for another one. I didn't know that. But anyways, I applied and then they denied my application to stay and study. And I was just like really shocked and God worked it out. It was miraculous. But the, the point what I'm trying to get to is this. When I was at that time, when I received that denial paper and I didn't know what to do, I was in a Bible school. Everybody would come to me and say, oh, we're praying for you. We're praying for you, right? And I, I know they mean it. But then I have this pastor from Kenya who comes to me. He's an international student like me. And he said, well, I'll be praying for you because I know what it means. You know? Now, I tell you, everybody was saying they're praying for me. And I know they mean it. And they probably prayed. But when that guy said he's praying for me because I know what it means, that meant a whole lot more to me. You know why? Because he understands the process. He knows what it means to go that process, how hard it is and how easy it is to get that done, right? Everybody else probably doesn't know what it means or what would it take for that to happen, right? But he knew. And the fact that he knew kind of comforted my heart because I knew this guy understand everything that I'm going through. Therefore, I know when he prays, he really knows exactly how to pray for me. Amen? And that's exactly how Jesus is for us. When Jesus intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of God, he's not interceding for, you know, a prayer need that we bring to him. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know this. Let me pray for you. He really, he really says, I have been there. I know what it means. I know how heartbreaking that can be. I know that anxiety and the stress that you're going through. I have been there. Therefore, when I pray, I really know what I'm praying for. Amen? Aren't you thankful today for our great high priest, Jesus? Amen? Aren't you thankful that he has suffered in every way just like us? So therefore, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 4, 15, same thing. For we do not have a high priest who is unable, look at this, who is unable to emphasize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted, again, in how many ways? Every way. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus went through every single suffering a human being can ever go through. He was a man of sorrow, he was a man of suffering, and he was afflicted with pain and persecution. Amen? Amen. That's how Jesus was through his growing up. Till the day. And all of this... And then after that, he starts the cross. You would think that this is enough. Nope, that wasn't enough. After all of that, he goes to the cross to die for you and me. Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray.